0: Welcome back, everyone, to the Rudy Show Podcast. I am your host, Ethan Rudlinger, and today we'll be continuing to delve deeper into our study of Matthew, starting in chapter 5, verse 33. So I'm going to read Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37, and I have a couple notes on this. Oaths. Again, you have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform the to the Lord which you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is His footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. Now, I took a note a while ago uh, on these verses here. Uh, I wrote, Swearing an oath in court could be considered heretical based on these verses. In court, they'll often have you place your hand on a Bible and solemnly swear that you're telling the truth and nothing but the truth. They'll also ask that you raise your right hand. This practice is derived from the days when those who would lie in a court of law were branded with a mark on their right hand, so that when the judge told them to raise their right hand, it would be apparent that they have a history of lying in court. As Christ says here in verse 37, all you need to say is simply yes or no. Now we're going to read Matthew chapter 5, 38 through 42. Retaliation, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now moving on to 43 through 48, I have a note on this one. We'll get to that. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Low blow. No, I'm joking. You therefore must be perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Now, <laughs> I said that because we're considered Gentiles. Uh, but, I have a note here. Being kind to people who persecute, swindle, belittle, abuse, hurt, beat, and revile you is a commandment of Christ. Sure, it may be difficult to be kind and cordial to a supervisor, co-worker, spouse, parent, sibling, or even a complete stranger that's treated you cruelly. But even an occasional prayer for people who make themselves out to be your enemies can be sufficient. Going on. Giving to the needy. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. in the footnotes here for Matthew chapter 5 verse 42 give to the one who begs from you Christians should help those who are truly needy and are therefore forced to beg they are not required to give foolishly to give to a lazy person who is not in need or to give where giving would do more harm than good and then for 543 you have heard that it was said Hate your enemy. The Old Testament never says that anyone should hate his or her enemy. In his you-have-heard statements, in 21, 27, 33, 38, and 43, Jesus corrects misinterpretations of the Old Testament, not the Old Testament itself. Chapter 5, verse 48. Be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect, concludes and summarizes the... 21 through 48, it shows that all the Law and the Prophets find perfect fulfillment in God the Father's perfection. All Jesus' disciples are called to pursue this perfection. Here in chapter 6 verses 2 through 4, hypocrites originally referred to Greek actors who wore different masks to play various roles. Jesus expected his disciples to give to the needy. Moving on. The Lord's Prayer And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners That they may be seen by others Just to pause here, the Sadducees come to mind Because they'd stand out in the street corners and go Oh glory to God Adonai, glory to El Shaddai Oh Adonai El Shaddai, glory to you And they would like do that for hours and hours and hours on end while people sat there and watched them, A lot of people were probably looking at him like, you're out of your mind. But yet they did it for the praise of men rather than the praise of God. They weren't praying to God. They might as well have been praying to men, right? They don't care what God thinks. They care about what them people around them think. They want them to think, oh, these are such holy men. When in reality, when you use like pride and hubris to pray, or do any kind of spiritual act in front of others. Typically, people just look at you like you're out of your mind anyways. Do it for God. Anyways, enough, friend. Alright, continuing on. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And here, starting in verse 16, we have fasting. I mean, this is all extremely important and should be taken to heart immediately, but this in particular should really be pondered, in my opinion. Lay up treasures in heaven. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness! No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now here in these terms down here we have uh, Stand and Pray in the Synagogues, and this is covering chapter 5, verse 5 through 6. At set times, Jews would stop what they were doing and pray. Jesus did not condemn all public prayer as indicated by his own prayers in public. One's internal motivation is his central concern. Verse 7-8 through Heap up empty phrases. Pagans repeated the names of their gods or the same words over and over without thinking. Jesus prohibits mindless repetition, not the earnest repetition that flows from a worshiping heart. 9-13 Jesus gives his disciples an example to follow when praying. Prayer consists of an invocation and six petitions. Uh, Chapter 6, verse 9. Father would have been Abba in Aramaic, the everyday language spoken by Jesus. It was a word used by Jewish children for their earthly fathers. However, since the term in both Aramaic and Greek was also used by adults to address their fathers, the claim that Abba meant Daddy is misleading. In heaven, the theme of Heavenly Father is found throughout the Old Testament. The concern of the first petition is that God's name would be hallowed, that it is treated with the highest honor and set apart as holy. Chapter 10 Christians are called to pray and work for the continual advancement of God's kingdom on earth. The presence of God's kingdom in this age refers to the reign of Christ in the hearts and lives of believers into the reigning presence of Christ and His body, the church. Genuine believers will increasingly reflect Christ's love, obey His laws, honor Him, and proclaim the good news of the kingdom. The third petition speaks of God's will. This asks that God's followers will behave in ways that are pleasing to Him. Believers on earth will follow God in the same way He is obeyed in heaven. Verse 11 the fourth petition focuses on the disciples' daily bread, which includes all their daily physical needs. And 12, forgive us our debts. The fifth petition does not mean that believers need to ask daily for justification, since believers are right with God from the moment of initial saving faith. This uh, evidence of this can be found in Romans chapter 5 verse 1 and chapter 8 verse 1. Rather, this is a prayer for the restoration of personal fellowship with God following sin. Chapter 6, verses 13. Lead us not into temptation. In this sixth and final petition, temptation can also indicate testing. The sins here most likely is allow us to be spared circumstances that would tempt us to sin. Deliver us from evil. The Greek word translated evil can mean either evil or the evil one, namely Satan. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. is evidently a later scribal addition. The most reliable Greek manuscripts lack these words, but there is nothing theologically incorrect about them. Forgive your trespasses refers to restoring relationship following sin, not salvation. Various kinds of fasts were practiced in Old Testament times. Though the law required only one fast a year on the Day of Atonement, fasting is probably implied by the command to afflict yourselves. See Leviticus sixteen twenty nine through thirty four for details. When you fast Jesus assumes that his disciples will fast, moving on to explain verse twenty one. Throughout scripture, the heart refers to the center of one's being. and includes one's emotions, reason, and will. 22-23 through 23, The eye, similar to the heart in Jewish literature, is a lamp that reveals the quality of a person's inner life. A healthy eye, clear vision, suggests loyal devotion to God. A bad eye, impaired vision, suggests moral corruption. Verse 24 Serve indicates the work of a slave, not an employee. A slave belongs to one master, so he must give the master exclusive service. Verse 30. Grass was a natural source of fuel for fire in a common biblical metaphor for human frailty. Little faith implies a deficiency rather than an absence of faith. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 2. Judge not forbids pronouncing another person guilty before God. But, see note on 3 to 5. Ah. Chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. The metaphor of a log in your own eye is an intentional overstatement. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus does not forbid all evaluation or judgment of others. This is important. However, the only person who feels grieved and humbled over his sin is able to help remove the speck from others. What Jesus rules out is pride that views oneself as better than others. So let's read uh, chapter 6, verses 25 through 34, and then start on chapter 7. Verse 25, do not be anxious. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Did you catch that? Jesus just condemned anxiety over survival. There's a lot of people in our culture today that need that sermon. Let me tell you. So when Jesus says in verses 28 through 29, And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. God told Solomon that he could, he could ask God for anything and he'd give it to him. Solomon looked at him and said, I'd like wisdom. So God gave him wisdom, and he was one of the wisest men to ever live in history, and he wrote Proverbs. Imagine standing before the creator of the universe, almighty God, and he, sa- he looks you dead in the face and says to you, Anything you ask, I will give it to you. How many people on this earth would make such a smart decision is to ask for wisdom to rule their empire. How many people out there would ask for a billion dollars? How many people out there would ask for the latest, I don't know, the latest car? a uh, Big old sports car, million, multi-million dollar sports car. How many people would ask for, I don't know, a several million dollar mansion? How many people would ask for, oh, guaranteed eternal life? How many people would ask for no more suffering and just to be able to breeze through life? How many people out there, if we're being honest with ourselves, would not have chosen something that would benefit others? Of course, I can drive this point home all day long, but it's a topic for another time when we study the story of Solomon. But there's a lot to be said about it. Um, Just the, the fact that he asked for wisdom on its own was not only, in a way, I guess, if you want to put it this way, a uh, an act of philanthropy, but it was also an act of wisdom on its own. See how that works? But, it's sort of uh, philanthropy to a certain extent, because it's asking for the wisdom to rule his empire, is essentially what it is. It's to improve his kingdom, to make smart decisions. But, All right, moving on before I get too hung up on that. Judging Others, Chapter 7 Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye. You hypocrites, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So, we've already read that Jesus Christ wasn't condemning judgments within the church, especially righteous judgments and spiritual discernment, which is a necessary tool to the believer. But when Jesus says, here it is, chapter 7, verse 6, yeah, just verse 6, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. What does this mean? So... I'm sure you've probably been talking to an atheist or been in a debate with an atheist, and uh, they ask if God, essentially the basic atheist arguments, right? We've all seen them. If God real, why bad thing happen, right? Oh well, if God's real, then why did my niece get cancer? Um, if God's real, then you know why are there all these different strata in the fossil layer that have been proven to be millions of years old? And of course, we can go on about why that's not true, but that's not the point here. When you sit there and explain these things and explain spiritual truths that have been hidden to these people, even coming from your own lips, the parables and the truth and wisdom in the Bible explained in plain English, they cannot grasp it. Because no amount of formal education can help you understand what this Bible says. No amount, no piece of paper that says PhD on it, or doctorate, or anything, can help you understand what's in this book. Nothing can help you understand what is in this book but God alone. God is the one that reveals spiritual knowledge and wisdom to those that diligently seek Him. That's why, when you sit there and try to explain these things to atheists, they get madder and madder and madder and call you an idiot, say, oh... Sky Daddy and Flying Spaghetti Monster and all these different ridiculous, like, pseudo-philosophical analogies that mean nothing. I mean, because they don't even comprehend what you're actually saying. They think they do. They think they know absolutely well what you're saying. But the deeper meaning behind what you're saying, you can convey it in a way that anybody should be able to understand it, but they don't. These are things that have to be revealed by the Holy Spirit in order for people to understand them. That's why Jesus said, Do not cast your pearls among the swine. Because if you give them these pearls of wisdom, they're going to trample them. They're going to get mad and twist it and say, Oh, well, um, God gives us free will. Oh, that's funny because he knows all things, right? Right. So if God knows everything and he gives us free will, he knows what's going to happen eventually, right? He knows everything we're going to do, so then therefore we don't have free will. Which is a ridiculous argument because uh, pre-foreknowledge of what you're going to do doesn't mean that you don't have free will. You know what I mean? If God having a a foreknowledge of what you're about to do doesn't mean he's not going to let you do it of your own accord. It doesn't mean he's necessarily manipulating anything either, even though, of course, he leads history along the path that he wants it to go or that he needs it to go. It's his will, right? His will be done. But that's why you you only talk to atheists and explain things to a certain point, or pagans, doesn't matter. That's why you only explain things to a certain point, because there comes a point in the argument or the debate or the conversation, whatever you want to call it, that they'll quit listening, they will twist your words, and they'll sharpen your words into a spear, and they'll attack you with them. They'll trample your pearls underfoot. That's why you shake the dust off your feet as Christ commanded the apostles, as a warning to them, and you say something along the lines of maybe, you know, I told you once that Jesus Christ is God, and to believe on Him and be saved, you refuse, your blood is on your own hands. That's about, I mean, that's all you got to say, really. Just leave it at that. They keep talking, ignore them. Honestly, they they rejected it? Fine. I mean, you're not always going to be able to change certain people, but even if they reject it, and even if you have to give them that warning, sometimes it'll plant a seed in their heart, to where when they hear more about the gospel later on in life, maybe, even if it's a week or a decade from now, that seed will grow in their heart. Whereas if you hadn't have told them that little bit or shared that wisdom with them, maybe, or hadn't have uh, explained the gospel a little bit to them, they probably wouldn't have been as receptive to it in the future, right? That's that seed growing in their heart. So, it's always good to at least explain the basics of the gospel of Jesus Christ to people. But that's not what I'm saying, that you shouldn't do that at all. That's that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, the, give them spiritual milk, sure. Don't give them the solid food of the epistles and the solid food of the wisdom of God. They don't need that. They need milk. Alright. Chapter 7, verse 7. Ask, and it will be given. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Golden Rule So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, also do to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Now to wrap up here today, the next page says, When worry is sinful and when it ain't. It says when it isn't. I just have a habit of saying ain't, to be honest this covers Matthew 6:25 through 34. The high point of the Sermon on the Mount may be Matthew 6:33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. But first Jesus engages the gods that keep us from seeking the kingdom. Reputation, wealth, and security. Reputation can be found 6, 1 through 4, and 16 to 18. Wealth can be found 19 to 20. Security can be found 25 to 32. Of course, those are all in chapter 6. The section on wealth concludes not with a command, don't serve money, but with a choice. No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. Verse 24. Jesus speaks to disciples who have chosen God. Having taken that step of faith, they need not be anxious about material things like food or clothing. The command, do not be anxious, or don't worry, appears in the beginning, middle, and end of this passage, 25, 31, and 34. To go back for just a second to... Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. There's a lot of people in life that think, Well, why am I failing at my job? Why am I about to be fired? Don't I praise God? Don't I fear God? Why am I, you know, losing my house? Or why am I losing my car? Why am I going broke? Don't I give my tithing? Well, Jesus says you're going to struggle in this life. It doesn't matter what you do. You could you could be the most godly saint on earth helping everybody, and you'll, you'll still face your fair share of hardship. It could be losing your house, it could be your whole family dying. I mean, look at Job, right? It, the belief that God is going to bless you regardless just because you do something right or good in his eyes is called the prosperity gospel. And it's one of the most heretical doctrines that are preached out there today. Don't buy into that garbage, all right? It, it's antithetical to what the Bible teaches. God will give you everything on his timing. We are not on We are not on our timing. we're on his timing. He okay, right, so think about it this way, right? If God knows the position of every atom in the universe at all times, and knows their number, then I'm pretty sure he knows everything that's going on. He knows exactly what's going on in your life, and he knows how to fix it. He knows, okay, if this happens, then this will fix this. If this happens, then this will happen a hundred years from now. He knows what's going on. His plan is perfect. The only choice you have is to trust him. And all these things will be added unto you. You also have to chase His righteousness. That's mentioned specifically in that verse. (laughs) A lot of people fail to realize that they have to repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ to begin with. And, of course, it's not necessarily a sin to pray to be blessed, right? Everybody wants comfortability in their life. Everybody wants good things, but That shouldn't be your center focus in life. Your center focus should be carrying out the will of God and serving Him. That is the whole point of being a Christian. It's not so you can have the most expensive car because you prayed to God for it. It's not so you can have the most expensive house because you prayed to God for it. It's so you can serve Him and do His will. Do not store up treasures on earth where moth and vermin do destroy, but store them up in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy. How do you store up treasure in heaven? Give to the needy. Someone's in the hospital, go visit them. Someone needs clothes on their back, give it to them. Uh, The church needs money, give it to them, if you got it. At some point, Jesus even says, When I was hungry, you fed me. And when I was naked, you clothed me. And when I was sick, you comforted me. And when I was in prison, you came and visited me. And he says this to the saints. The saints all turn to him and they look at him and they're like, When did we ever do these things for you? And he said, Truly I tell to you, Whichever one of you have done that for the least of these you've done for me. When you do those things for God's people, when you do do those things for others, trying to lead them to repentance through God's kindness, you are doing those things to Jesus Christ. And that, the Bible makes that very clear. Jesus explains why disciples shouldn't worry. First, we shouldn't worry because life is not, is not life more than food. Verse 25. Since God cares for all parts of life, he surely cares for our material needs. Second, since God cares for his lesser creatures, such as birds, he surely cares for us, his children. Third, worry accomplishes nothing. It can't lengthen life and may shorten it. Fourth, God adorns flowers with unmatched beauty and he clothes the grass faithfully. Flowers and grass are symbols of the brevity and fragility of life. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 7. Life is fragile, but if God cares for plants, he will protect us despite our little faith. Jesus' disciples have faith, but their worry proves the weakness of their faith. Great faith comes by, not by looking forward to the believing itself, but by looking upward to God. By faith, we can stop thinking like pagans, filled with anxiety about food and clothing. Pagans, thinking like orphans, worry. Disciples, thinking like children, relax. Anxiety may not always be sinful it is wrong to tally our worries and let them congeal into one mass of anxiety 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 7 but paul had a proper anxiety same greek word for all his churches 2 Corinthians 11:28 paul felt concern but he apparently saw his anxiety as a problem not as a sin There is a form of concern that is not sinful as we take that concern to God. Then, as faith quiets our fears, we find God, God's will, and follow it. We may plan for tomorrow's food, but we don't worry, knowing the Father supplies every need. Liberated from worry, we seek His kingdom and righteousness. And I believe that'll do it for Episode 3, Part 2 of the Gospel of Matthew. Thank you so much for watching, and remember to tune in next time when we go over part three.